Join me this morning in the Gospel of Mark, please, chapter 5. There's Matthew and then Mark, second book in the New Testament. I want to talk to you this morning on tell the story. Tell the story. Now, if there's going to be, if we're going to tell the story, that means there has to be something to tell. There has to be something to share. Have you ever said to someone or had someone say to you in just casual conversation these words right here? You're not going to believe what just happened. You ever said that to someone? You ever had somebody say that to you? Whether it be your spouse, your kids, your parents, a friend, a co-worker. You're not going to believe what just happened. Whether it be good or bad. I can't believe, you're not, you're not going to believe what happened. Well, can I tell you something? That the Gospels are full of, you're not going to believe what just happened moments. (laughs) They're put in the Bible for us so that we would, in fact, believe what happened. Hearing a firsthand account, an eyewitness testimony gives credence to what we're being told. Because what they're saying is a little unbelievable. And yet when they they say this part, when they say, but I was there. I saw it. I heard it. I felt it. I experienced it. I lived it. I know it's true. And there's something about that that gives it weight. Mark chapter 5 gives us one of those, you're not going to believe it, moments. In fact, if you follow Jesus around in the accounts of his life, you're going to see one, I can't believe it moment after another. Because Jesus specialized in I can't believe it moments. You're not going to believe what just happened. Over and over and over and over again. You're not going to believe it. Had I not been there and witnessed it myself, I wouldn't have believed it either. Well, Mark 5 is one of those. Just to give you a little background, and we're going to dive in in just a second and understand what's going on. But Jesus encounters a man. This is uh, told uh, from one perspective. Uh, there's a, a parallel passage that says there were two men. But we know there's at least one. And this man was demon-possessed. There's no other way around it. He lived along the coastline there of the Sea of Galilee. And he lived near a region called Decapolis. It was a ten-city region. It was heavily populated. We're not sure uh, uh, how how well-known he was. He was at least well-known enough that... Folks in a certain village and area tried to tame him. He was, at best, a nuisance. He was a bother. He was a threat. He was hideous. Hideous. He was scary. He was freaky. I mean, he was wild and crazy. The demons inside of him controlled him. In fact, he was an embarrassment 
The citizens of the city had come out multiple times. They had used chains and fetters. When he was at least in somewhat of a normal state, they would try to shackle his wrist and legs with fetters and chains. And the Bible will plainly describe here in the verses before that we're not going to read, but it says that he had broken those chains. The demonic power inside of him, those demons, gave him an extraordinary sense of strength, superhuman strength. And he broke the chains. And yet we see the destructive nature of demonism and the destructive nature of sin itself and how Satan's goal in every life is to do with you and I and every single person what he was doing with this man that the Bible says that he developed a self-destructive nature. He took the, the broken uh, 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 iron and metal and he would, would, would literally uh, cut his own body, self-mutilate him, self-mutilation. See, here's the thing about sin that so many of us fail to realize is that it's not just enough that Satan wants to deceive us in getting involved in sin. He, he, he wants that sin to actually destroy us. This man was self-destructing. Nobody could calm him down. The Bible says no man, no man could tame him even though they had made multiple, multiple attempts to tame him. Until one day... When according to the sovereign plan of God, Jesus gets out of a ship, they dock, they go up on the shore at Galilee, and Jesus gets out of the boat, and immediately this man spots Jesus. And there's question about who was it that drove the man to go encounter Jesus? Was it him out of desperation, or was it the demons that drove him over there to try to scare Jesus away, or pose a threat to Jesus? We don't know. Here's what I do know. God sovereignly allowed it and planned it. Just like he does everything in our life. And this encounter with Jesus was no exception. And so the man uh, uh, comes and he comes to Jesus. And, 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 and the scripture says that this man lived in the tombs. Okay, They apparently had cut the tombs out of the cliffs there. The caves were turned into graves. They simply, as in the case of Jesus' grave, they would simply roll a stone over the mouth of the cave, and that's where they would, that was their local cemetery. And so this is where this man lived. He lived in the open or vacant tombs that had already been dug out of the cliff there. Some even believe that he even uh, would pry his way, and there's no way to prove this, would pry his way into the occupied graves, if you can imagine that, and sleep in there sometimes. We don't know. We just know that this was a very odd thing at best. We know it was satanic. We know that it was demonically driven. Uh, Dr. Johnny Pope, who we had back in September, he has a sermon, and he said this guy was a new dude in a rude mood, and he was. The Bible describes him as somebody who, 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 who was unclothed. <laughs> so I can imagine, y'all, okay, I mean, when, when, when you were a citizen of that area, just passing by, you know, maybe the fishermen in the area, I mean, and, and all of a sudden you look up and you see this cat, and I mean, he's no telling how long he had been out there, and his hair's going all which way, and he looks hideous, and he's running at you, screaming, 
You know, I'd be like, all right, it's time to vacate the premises right about now. So he has this same M.O. with Jesus. He comes running out of the tombs. I don't know what sound he was making, but he comes out and he looks, you know, and he tries, the demons try to threaten Jesus, intimidate Jesus. Aren't you glad Jesus, there was never a situation that intimidated Jesus. He's not intimidated by what threatens me, what threatens you. He's not intimidated by your situation or mine. There's been never a situation that was too great for him. So this man comes out, make a long story, long story short. I started to say Jesus encountered the man, but hold up. The man encountered Jesus. Now how many of y'all know when somebody encounters Jesus, they can't remain the same? And he didn't remain the same. You say, what happened to him? Well, he, he got saved. He got saved. Radically, dramatically. Look at verse 15. And they come to Jesus, speaking of the citizens of that village. They come to Jesus. Watch this. And they see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion. He's sitting. He wasn't doing that before. He's clothed. Hello, he wasn't clothed before. And he's in his right mind. Now let me just stop there and say that when somebody comes to Jesus and he saves them and he changes them, I promise you, I promise you, their sanity is going to be restored in some way. They're going to be in their right mind. How many of y'all know that when somebody is controlled by sin, they're not even thinking straight? But when you get right with the Lord and Jesus saves you and cleanses you and changes you, he puts you back in your right mind. You're able to see some things that you hadn't seen in a long time. And keep reading. And it says, now watch this, verse 15. So when they see him like this, he's sitting down. He's not running around like a chicken with his head cut off. And he's got his clothes on now. And he's in his right mind. And he's just sitting calm. The Bible says this, and this has always tripped me out. You ever read something in the Bible and you're like, dude, that's just funny. That trips me out. Look at what it says, verse 15. And they were afraid. Now, wait a minute. Here's this dude that scared them before because he was controlled by demons. And now that he's saved and calm and sane and clothed, hallelujah, he's sitting down. Now they're they're scared now as to what he is now. Verse 16. And they They that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. Y'all remember this. Y'all remember this from this passage, right? That when the demons, when Jesus cast the demons out, he allowed the demons to go into the swine and they ran down the hill aggressively, violently, the scripture says, aggressively, and they ran into the water, or in some passage it says that they ran off a cliff. Anyway, the whole bottom line is they go into the water and they drown, the swine drown, and they commit suicide. You'll you'll get, all right. So the owners of the swine, now they're mad. 
So they're the ones stirring up the trouble. And they go back into the city and they get everybody riled up because they're mad at Jesus. In fact, before it's all said and done, you'll read what happens. They actually kick Jesus out of this area. Get out. Why? They weren't happy or rejoicing that he cast demons out. They were ticked off that they lost their livelihood. Get out, Jesus. We don't want you in our parts. So the Bible says in verse 17, And they began to pray him, that means to urge him, to depart out of their coasts. We don't want you around. You're a troublemaker. Verse 18, and when he, Jesus, was coming to the ship, watch this, he's leaving. How many of y'all know that if you don't want Jesus around you, guess what? He won't hang around you. And if you keep telling him no enough times, he will leave you alone. So they told him no, we don't want you here. I know you saved this man. I know that you solved our uh, problem when it came to that man. But you created another problem for us because now our hogs are dead. By the way, uh, ceremonially, uh, these Jews weren't even supposed to be raising hogs. That's a whole other thing right there in itself. So they're mad at Jesus. And so he says, listen, okay, we'll leave. So he goes to the ship, and when he comes into the ship to sail off again, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him, verse 18, that he might be with him. In other words, he said, Lord, I want to go with you. <laughs> I don't want to hang around here with these bunch of yahoos, you know. Number one, they were scared of him before because I was demon-possessed. Now they're scared of me now because I'm saved and sane. I don't want to hang out here. I want to go with you. You changed my life. You set me free. I want to be with you. I want to be like these other guys. Watch what Jesus said to him. Verse 19, Howbeit Jesus suffered him not or allowed him not, but said, Go home to your friends. Tell them how great things the Lord has done for you. And hath had compassion on thee. And he departed, verse 20, he departed. The man did. And began to publish in Decapolis. How great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. The man went and told the story. He told the story. He told the gospel. In fact, it's interesting that the same words that are used here in the original language for go and declare, it says that he began to publish the great things the Lord had done. It's all the same word. It's euangelion. It's the gospel. It's go tell the gospel. It's go publish the gospel. And that's what the man did. He took his story and related the greatest story ever told. And today, I want to tell you, I want to encourage you. Today, the Bible is full and full and full of principle after principle, passage after passage, Text after text that puts the burden on you and I to go tell the story. So I want to tell you three things, and we're going to pray. Listen carefully, though. Listen carefully. Number one, telling the story is the byproduct of a transformed life. The man didn't have anything to tell beforehand, but now he does. The Bible says in verse 15, he was possessed with the devil, not anymore. 
It says he had the legion. There's questions on what this means. How many demons did he have possessing him? Thousands. Thousands of demons possessed this man. Now look, I can't even imagine that. His life, his mind, his spirit, his soul, everything about him was absolutely controlled by these demons, this satanic power, but he got cleansed, he got saved, he got set free by Jesus, and now here he is, completely changed, completely different. He's sitting down, he's in his right mind, he's got his clothes on, and and and, and everything about him that Satan stole away from him, Jesus had restored back. His mind, his health, his wholeness, his saneness, his Purity. Verse 18 says that he was coming to the ship. Jesus had come into the ship. And he that had been, that's past tense, possessed with the devil, the demon, prayed him, begged him, asked him, Lord, please, I want to go with you. What a change. What a, what a drastic contrast between scene number one when Jesus gets out of the ship and scene number two when Jesus goes back to the ship. You say, man, it's two different people. Yeah, it is. It's the same man, but what a radical transformation Jesus did in his life. And can I tell you that if you're born again today, Jesus has done a radical transformation in you. You say, well, well, he hadn't in me. Friend, if Jesus has never radically transformed you, then you've never been saved. 2 Corinthians 5.17 or uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 is crystal clear because it says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Listen carefully. New creature. New creation. All things passed away. All things become new. Listen, if there's no change in your life, then there's never been any Christ in your life. You can't When Jesus moves in, you cannot remain the same. You're here this morning, you say, preacher, I've never been made new. I've never had that radical transformation. I've never been made into a new creature. I want to say this in love, friend. Would you come to Christ today? Would you acknowledge Christ today? Would you receive Jesus today? Would you let him be Lord of your life today? Because I promise you, when he moves in, things will change in your heart. And then they'll be lived out in your life. His name was Carl Hatch. He became an evangelist. He was a soldier in the Korean War. He got out of the military. He saw action in combat and, and, and was released and, and came back to the States. And, and this was during the time when uh, he, he was born and raised in Arkansas. And, 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 and the, the factories up north in Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois... We're saying, hey, hey, we need help up here. Jobs are available up here. And he read an ad in a newspaper one day that said, General Motors needs help up north. So he moved up north. He was married, just a young wife, no children. So he packed up and he ran a pool hall down in Arkansas and moved up north. And he got a job at the Buick plant in Flint, Michigan. Make a long story short, old Carl Hatch was just, I mean, a booze hound. I mean, just a flat-out drunk. 
He was abusive to his wife. That's the environment he grew up in. That's all he really knew. But he got up there, and their next-door neighbor was a preacher, was a lay preacher. And he'd walk over, and he'd witness and witness and witness and witness. His wife got saved. Carl's wife got saved. And she began to immediately just pray and pray and pray. Pray for Carl. Pray for Carl. He said, it made me so mad. I'd walk in the house. I'd be working all day. I'd come home, and I'd see my wife on her knees. And I'd hear her saying, Lord, save Carl. Save Carl. Save Carl. If it means taking my life, Lord, save Carl. He said, that make me so mad. He He said, I'd be half lit, half drunk, mad. He said, I'd go over there and I'd hit her. Shut up, woman. With blood and tears running down her face, he said, she just kept praying, God save Carl. He said, now, friend, you can't outrun those prayers. (laughs) He said, God got my attention and God got a hold of me. And he said, one night... My wife was in our bedroom calling out to heaven for God to save my wretched soul. And he said, I knew I was lost. I knew I was undone. I knew I needed Jesus. And he said, I went into my wife, our bedroom and fell down beside my wife. And he said, I just started calling out to Jesus for Jesus to save me. He said, Jesus changed my life that night. He said, my wife and I got up off her knees and we hugged and she rejoiced and shouted. I looked at her and said, you know where we need to go. So we went into the kitchen and I started pulling down bottles that I had hidden. We started dumping out the liquor that I had hidden in every crevice and corner of my kitchen in my house. He said, Jesus changed me. He said, I had stolen some coffee cups from Buett from the plant and I I'd use them every day, but they weren't mine. I knew they weren't mine. He said, they belonged to Buick. And so he said that next morning, I threw those 10 coffee cups in my dinner pail. (laughs) And he said, I started walking in the main gate there. He said, that security guard heard the clanging around in my dinner pail. And he stopped me. Hey, boy, what you got there in that dinner pail? He said, I knew I was busted. He said, sir, he said, I know you ain't going to believe this. He said, but I got religion last night. That's what he said. I got religion last night. And he said, I I got some coffee cups in here. And he opened up his lunch pail. He said, I stole these old coffee cups from from Buick. And he said, I got religion last night and got under conviction about stealing these coffee cups. And he said, now I'm bringing them back. And he said the security guard looked at him and he shook his head and said, good night. He said, boy, if you got that kind of religion, he said, you keep in coffee cups. Oh, Carl Hatch. Carl Hatch started telling everybody at the Buick plant about Jesus. He started a little Bible study at lunchtime and said he had a dozen people coming to it. And he said then six months later they had a hundred and some people coming to it. Then he said by the end of it they were having hundreds that would gather at lunchtime. And he'd just get up. He said, I didn't even know. He said, I called the book of Job the book of Job. He said, I didn't know. He said, I call it the book of Rome instead of Romans. He said, my wife had to teach me how to read, how to write. 
said, I'd scribble some stuff out, I mean, on a little piece of paper or napkin and get up and preach. And he said, all I would do, he said, I did memorize John 3.16. And he said, every day I'd get up and talk about John 3.16. I'd give my testimony. And he said, I'd watch my coworkers and the hundreds of people at that Buick plant bow their head and call on Jesus to save them. You see, before, gang, Carl Hatch didn't have a story to tell. But when God saved him, God gave him a story. Because, friend, you don't have a story until you have a transformed life. And I'm telling you right now, this fellow had a story. This former demon-possessed man had a story. You say, well, my story's not as radical and dramatic as that. I want to tell you in the eyes of heaven and in the eyes of God, your story is just as awesome, just as marvelous, just as wonderful. I don't care if you got saved when you were 4, 14, 40, or 400. You have a testimony and a story to share to everyone you come in contact with. Telling the story is a byproduct of transformed life. Number two, telling the story is the business of every believer. Verse 20, Jesus told him to go and he departed and he began to publish. That means he just made it known, just made it known, made it known. How great things Jesus had done for him. Preacher, I don't know what to say. How about let's start with you just telling people how great things the Lord has done for you. You say, why Why is it that way? Why did God design it that way? Because let me tell you something. When you're telling people about the greatness of God and how Jesus' love and grace and cross and blood and his power has changed you, who gets the credit in all that? He does. You see, telling your story, listen, telling your story is not about your glory. Telling your story is all about God's glory. He's the one that gets the attention and the praise and the adoration. He says, I want you to tell your story. It's the business of every believer. I love what I came across this week. Someone shared this with me. Pastor J.D. Greer, he has this statement in a book that he's recently written. And he says this. He says, the church doesn't just send missionaries. The church is the missionary. You're like, why? Why? The church is, yes, because every one of us have been told to go share the story. The church doesn't just send missionaries. The church is to go. And it's interesting when you read Matthew 28, here is how it actually is worded and what it actually means. As you are going, as you are living life, you make disciples. In other words, it's to be the natural byproduct of every Christian life. You shouldn't have to have a local church organized visitation program in order to make disciples. Now we do, thank God, and we're going to keep on having one. But the principle of Scripture is as you're living your life and as you're living for God and as you're going to work and as you're raising your family and as you're talking to people and as you're shopping at Wally World and as you're eating out at a restaurant and as you're befriending people and loving on people and living life for Christ, you share Jesus and make disciples. 
it shouldn't have to be scheduled. It shouldn't have to be something that you make yourself do once a week, once a month, on a Saturday morning or a Thursday night or a Wednesday night or whenever it is. No. It's 24-7. Every day. As you're living life for Jesus, as you're just a spirit-filled believer, you're making disciples, you're sharing the gospel, you're sharing the story. That's what the emphasis is. See, we've compartmentalized it. We've said that, oh, listen, this is just about what happens one hour. Listen to me now, watch me, watch me, watch me. God says, I don't want you to compartmentalize it. It's not just for Sunday school teachers. It's not just for deacons and staff members and Faith Christian Academy teachers. No, no, it's for every believer. Go tell the story. Jesus told the dude, he said, no, no, no. You go back home and tell the story. And he tells you and I today, everywhere we go, tell the story. Somehow, some way, we listened to uh, Jake Waldman this morning in Sunday school. And if you missed it, you missed a blessing. But I love the thought of where he says that they're trying to train their people how to engage people, others, in gospel conversations. Just sharing Christ. Number three, telling your story is the burden of our hearts. Telling the story should be the burden of our hearts. And I close with this. I don't want you to pack up. I want you to listen. It's very interesting where Jesus told him to go. He said, I want you to go home. Verse 19, I want you to go home. And I want you to tell your friends what I've done for you. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell the people that you know. So who do you know? Who do you know? Who do you know that's lost? If I were to ask you this morning, no, don't raise your hand. If I were to ask you, do you know any lost people? Do you know any lost people? Do you? I mean, do you really know? Do you know their name? Do you know any lost people? So I. I know one or two. Well, friend, don't you think the Lord might want us to start right there with them? You already have a connection. You already have knowledge. They already know you and you already know them. I will say, if you sit here this morning and you honestly say, I don't know any lost people, I say this in love, but shame on you. Shame on us that we don't know any lost people. Shame on us that we've lived inside the salt shaker for so long that we've never actually gotten out of the salt shaker. Shame on us that we've lived under the bushel basket for so long that we've never taken the bushel off to let our light shine into this world. See, you saying that you don't know any lost people, that's not a badge of Christianity. That's opposite of Christianity. We are to take the gospel into contact with lostness and darkness. 
Jesus said, you go home, you go to your friends, you tell the lost people that you know what I've done for you. That's who should burden our hearts. Are you burdened this morning? Who's on your heart that's lost? Who's on your prayer list that's lost? Dr. Steve Gaines asked this question. Listen carefully. If God were to answer all of your prayers that you've prayed in the last 24 hours, how many people would be getting saved? In other words, how many have you, how many have I prayed for? How many lost people have I prayed for in the last 24 hours? What's the takeaway? Number one, elevate, evaluate, evaluate where you are. Where are you when it comes to this? And ask yourself the hard questions. Here's the question, how am I really doing at telling the story? Really, now. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal that to us. Are you willing to ask the question, how am I doing? Number two, start where you are and use what you have. You have your story of how Jesus saved and changed you. Somehow, some way, tell it. Tell it. Just tell it. Share it. Number three, get a list of names, even if it's just one. Get a list of names and start praying specifically for them. You say, preacher, I don't have a burden that concerns me. I don't have a burden. I really don't. I really don't have a burden like I know I need to have. Can I tell you, can I encourage you that the burden you lack and the burden you need and the burden you want will eventually develop the more you pray? You don't have to worry about getting a burden if you just start praying. Start praying for those one or two, three, four names every day, every day, every day. God save this person. God save this person. Lord, if you want me to be a part of this equation, you show me what to do. But God save this person. And I promise, listen, it's impossible nearly to pray for somebody without developing a burden for them. Get a list of names and start praying every day. Number four, stop waiting. Stop waiting. Start telling. Just start telling. There's never a wrong person you can tell. And there's really not a wrong way to verbalize your story. You just got to start. I'm talking to different groups of people this morning as I close. Those that need to be saved, I urge you, give your life to Jesus. He wants to change you and fill you and forgive you, just like he did this man in Mark chapter 5. Just like he did Christian Powell when I was 11 years old. And just like he's done for hundreds.